Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Study. I'm in Matthew chapter 24. We're talking about all of it discourse, the Tuesday of Passion Week, Tuesday evening, as Jesus talks with four of his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. He's already asked three famous questions. Other disciples have asked him, and he's answered three, or he's getting ready to answer three famous questions. The question number one is, what is the... When will all these things take place? These things referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The second question is, what will be the sign of your coming? And the third question is, what will be the sign at the end of the age? Now, Jesus is going to answer that question in verse 34. He's going to say, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place, which is basically the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But before he answers the question about when all these things are going to take place, he's going to talk about events leading up to the great event of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And that's what he's going to be spending most of the verses now between verses 4 to verse 34 on is the harbingers of the great event or the the things that are going to happen beforehand. So we're going to start at verse 4 and talk about what some of those events might be. Then Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. So this is the first thing that they got to look out for before 8070 occurs, which is the false Messiah. Now, when he says, watch out that no one deceives you, he means deceives you in the matter of being a Messiah. Now, why would people be claiming to be the Messiah? Well, everybody back then was expecting an earthly messianic kingdom, including the disciples. They were suckers for that, and so they would most likely going to be, they would be tempted to believe that a Messiah was Jesus coming back to set up the kingdom, perhaps, or another prophet to come set up a kingdom. They were kind of primed that way. They were they were programmed that way already. They already had shown that they refused to grasp that Jesus was going to be killed. They wanted to stay in the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. They were they were just gravitating to the idea of a glorious messianic kingdom. But Jesus says, no, it's not going to come. And the temple is going to be destroyed. That's why he kept saying, I assure you, he says, I assure you, not one stone would be left on top of the other. Now, what happened, of course, is when all the political agitation against Rome broke out in the 80s, that's when false messiahs came, because they said, see here, we're going to deliver you from the Romans. And the worse the Roman oppression was felt, the more the messiah would be longed for. And there was going to be lots of Roman oppression right there in the, in the late 60s. Jesus comes back to this at the end of at the end of the discourse here in Matthew 24, verses 20 through through 24 he says this if anyone tells you then look here is the messiah or over here do not believe it false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray if possible even the elect we'll talk about that when we get there but the point is is that jesus was very concerned about false messiahs leading astray his disciples now the disciples before 8070 they labored under a disadvantage that we don't have today judaism was still an operating concern at that time it was still plausible for a false messiah to come and say, I'm going to be king of the Jews, because the Jews were still there. But after Rome, after Israel was wiped out by Rome in AD 70, that's not going to happen. And so it's a lot harder for a false messiah to gain traction. He can't say, I'm going to be king of the Jews, when there's no Jewish kingdom to be king of anymore. Now here's some examples of false messiahs that arose in that time. This is from John Gill, a guy named Thutis. He's not the one that's mentioned in Acts 5.36, by the way, but he was a guy that was in the Emperor Claudius's reign, which is what... Five, around 50 or so, he persuaded, many to, he persuaded many to come to the Jordan River so they could see him divide it. The Roman governor, Cuspius Fatus, cut his head off. Josephus said he deceived many. So there's a false messiah. And then another false messiah called the Egyptian. 
This is mentioned in Acts 21, verse 38. This is quoted by a Roman, the Roman commander that's protecting Paul from the Jerusalem mob. I think it's Felix. We'll see. I get Felix and Festus and Agrippa always mixed up there at the end of Acts. Well, this is Felix, I believe. And he says to Paul, aren't you, Paul, aren't you the Egyptian who raised a rebellion some time ago and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? So there was somebody named the Egyptian who was a false messiah. He had 4,000 people in the wilderness. In addition to this, we get from other sources, he persuaded 30,000 men to follow him to the Mount of Olives. 30,000 men to prepare to enter Jerusalem. Now notice the Messianic implications. The Messiah was going to deliver Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 says this, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The walls of Jerusalem were supposed to fall down according to, the, to this Egyptian who's got 30,000 men on the Mount of Olives. Supposed, the walls of Jerusalem were supposed to fall down just like the walls of Jericho did. This comes from Josephus, Jewish Antiquities, and Josephus' Jewish Wars. Two works of Josephus tells us about this Egyptian guy. Now, note some people actually dispute that what Felix was talking about in Acts 21 was the same Egyptian that Josephus was talking about, but I don't, so I'm just going to assume they're the same people. And then we've got Simon Magus, the famous Simon Magus of Acts 8, verses 9 through 10. Verse 9, a man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, this man is called the great power of God. Irenaeus, the famous first, the famous uh, Christian uh, early church father, who mainly operated out of Lyon in southern France, said that Simon Magus was the quote-unquote son of God and the creator of angels, he claimed. Jerome says that Simon Magus had this quote attributed to him, I am the word of God, I am the comforter, I am almighty, I am all there is of God. So he, he's a pretty cocky fellow. Not to mention blasphemous. He performed much magic by demons, who we know from that story in Acts 8. He, he tried to buy the power of God. That's where we get the word simony from, clergymen buying their positions with money, just as Simon tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money. He was honored as a god. There was a statue found in the Tiber River in Rome that had this inscription, To Simon, the holy god. And most Samaritans indeed worshipped him as the supreme god. I would say he qualified as a false messiah in this period between A.D. 30 and A.D. 70. There was a guy named Ocetheus the Samaritan who claimed to be the Messiah. This is the early church father Origen mentions him. And Tertullian, the early church father, mentions a guy named Menander. No one could be saved unless he was baptized in Menander's name. That qualifies for a false messiah, a false messiah, I would think. And this is another Thutis here, not the one I, or I just mentioned, but this is the Thutis mentioned in Acts 5.36. This is Gamaliel speaking, Paul's old teacher, Paul's old rabbi. Not long ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his partisans were dispersed and came to nothing. So there's another false messiah. Another guy named Judas the Galilean mentioned in Acts 5, verse 37. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted after this man, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and attracted the following... That man also perished, and all his partisans were scattered. There's a guy named Thomas Newton writing in the eight, in 18th century London who said that uh, there were other false messiahs uh, that occurred under the procuratorship of Felix, the same Felix I just mentioned at the end of Acts. This is Thomas Newton's quote. Many of them, these impostors, were apprehended and killed every day. They seduced great numbers of the people still expecting the messiah. And then we've got Menachem, the son of Judas the Galilean. 
that same Judas the Galilean mentioned in Acts 5.37, who took attracted a following in the days of the census. His son, Menachem, followed in his father's false messiahship footsteps. This guy is mentioned by Josephus in his book, The Jewish War. Quote, Menachem took his intimate friends off with him to Masada, that famous tower fortress in the desert south of Jerusalem. I've been there. It's, it's, it's just as advertised, very hard to get to, very high up in the air. His intimate friends, Menachem took his intimate friends off with him to Masada, where he broke into King Herod's armory and provided arms both for his fellow townsmen and for other brigands. Then, with these men for his bodyguard, he returned like a veritable king to Jerusalem, became the leader of the revolution, and directed the siege of the place. So they laid their plans to attack him in the temple, whither he had gone up in state to pay his devotions, arrayed in royal robes, and attend his suite of armed fanatics. That's, as I said, that's Josephus, and this is during the Jewish War. Then there was a guy in AD 68 who is mentioned by Dee Dee Warren in her book, It's Not the End of the World. She's quoting Josephus in the Jewish War. The guy named Simon, son of Georas, G-I-O-R-A-S. I hope I pronounced that right. Simon, son of Georas. He was in AD 68. He was ritually executed by the Romans at the end of the Jewish War. The Romans considered him the leader of the, of the rebellion of the Jewish war. Simon considered himself the Messiah. When he saw his goose was cooked, he openly presented himself, presented himself in royal attire on the spot where the temple once stood. This is after the Romans burn it down. Here's an example of his messianic temples, of his messianic activities before the burning of the temple. This is the quote from Josephus, quote, He withdrew to the hills, where by proclaiming liberty for slaves and rewards for free, he gathered around him the villains from every quarter. And now, when he was becoming a terror to the towns, many men of standing were seduced by his strength and career of unbroken success into joining him. And his was no longer an army of mere serfs or brigands, but one including numerous citizen recruits subservient to his command as to a king. Now, that's plenty of evidence of false messiahs. Now, how do futurists try to explain all that evidence away? They say that none of the above-mentioned false messiahs literally said, I am the Messiah, and that's true, but it proves nothing, because Jesus never said he was the Messiah. He never, Jesus never came out and said, I am the Messiah. Now, what he did is he called himself the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, of us, as I've said many times before in my audios here, and also the people called him the Son of David, and that was a common expression referring to the Messiah, so... Everybody knew what he was doing. He said, I am the Father in one. I mean, you know, he didn't say, I am the Messiah, but he was obviously claiming to be the Messiah. When he said that, he worked miracles. He claimed he was setting up a kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is near. His actions convinced both the Jews and the Romans he was claiming Messiahship. He didn't, they didn't have to look for Jesus actually saying, I am the Messiah. The, and the false messiahs were doing Messiah-like things. For example, they gathered, gathered bandits around them, just like David did. They claimed to be kings. They claimed to be able to set the people free. They tried to take over Jerusalem. One of them even came from Mount of Olives, where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So the Romans, they knew a Messiah when they saw one. They killed the false messiahs, just like they killed the true Messiah. So this is a ridiculous argument saying that because the false messiahs never said, I am the Messiah, therefore Jesus couldn't be referring to these false, these people were not the false messiahs that Jesus was referring to in verse 4 here in the Olivet Discourse. And besides, it very well could have happened that one of them said, I am the Messiah, and nobody just got around to getting it recorded. Josephus probably didn't feel it was necessary to quote them saying, I am the Messiah, because it was so obvious what they were claiming. That's a dumb argument, in other words. So th this is a very strong argument for 
false messiahship happening right around the time of the Jewish war. And there's a very strong buttress for the preterist case. Now, let's look at the word you in verse 4. This word you. Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Who was he talking to? He was talking to those four disciples. He's trying to warn them against getting deceived by false messiahs. He was not trying to warn people at the end of the world. Let's say if Jesus comes back 10 years from now, he's not trying to warn Dan Trotter against false messiahs. He's trying to warn his disciples back then. Now, I know that that preterists sometimes push that too hard, the audience relevance argument too hard but here i don't think there's any question that jesus was talking about his disciples because uh, let me give you a quote from dd warren who agrees with me she's a orthodox preterist and she believes that orthodox preterists push that you argument too hard because let me and she quotes walter kaiser my old professor at trinity evangelical divinity school Kaiser says this, quote, The precise specificness and particularity of the Bible was not meant to prejudice its universal usefulness, but to make the principles involved all the more concrete, real, and personal. The problem of particularity occurs in other aspects of biblical studies, but even there, one can witness the Bible's own direct application of earlier historical events. The use of the first person, we or us, as if the people addressed several centuries after the event took place, were still participating in that ancient event, bears witness to the Bible's refusal to let the Pacific in particular block any appeal to universals or general applications. Thus, while there are fewer general principles than there are specific commands, this should not affect the eventual usefulness of most, if not all, of the injunctions. In other words, Kaiser saying usually it's specific commands to the person standing right there in, the, in front of the person saying you. It's a specific command to you, not a general application to Christians 2,000 years later. Uh, He says that there are fewer times that you can use you to refer to people all 2,000 years in the future. More often, there are specific commands to the people who are being directly addressed. And I believe that this is an, an example of that. Jesus is talking about you disciples need to watch out for false messiahs. Why do I say that? Well, Diddy Warren points out that you've got a you, but you've got something in addition to the you. You've got a time indicator. Verse 34 says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So you take that you that Jesus, when Jesus talks to those four disciples, and you take the time indicator that this generation will not pass away, he's talking to the four disciples. And the context is the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus said, take care that you don't get deceived. The whole city of Jerusalem in AD 70 was deceived into thinking they could beat the Romans. This is a quote from Josephus in in his book, The Jewish Wars. Thus it was that the wretched people were deluded at that time by charlatans and pretended messengers of the deity, while they neither heeded nor believed in the manifest portents that foretold the coming desolation, but as if thunderstruck and bereft of eyes and mind, disregarded the plain warnings of God. So they didn't believe. They were deluded by the charlatans, as Josephus put it, the false messiahs that Jesus predicted in verses 4 and 5 of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 6 and 7. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. All right, this is another indication of the preliminary events, the birth pangs, if you will, of the final destruction of the temple. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. That's the end of the Jewish age. It's not the end of the world. Verse 7, for nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And I'm going to take a lot of time to show you 
the wars and rumors of wars that occurred, and then I'm going to talk about the famines, and then I'm going to talk about the earthquakes. It's going to take a lot of time, but I'm going to show you how much evidence there is to show what was going on in this period between AD 30 and AD 70. The Jews themselves saw wars as a sign of the coming of the Messiah. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. The Jews themselves say, In the time of the Messiah, war shall be stirred up in the world. Nation shall rise against nation and city against city. Quoting a rabbi named Sohar Kadash. And here's another rabbi, Eleazar, the son of Abina. He said this, When you see kingdom rising against kingdom, then expect the immediate appearance of the Messiah. So the Jews themselves predicted, predicted that the Messiah was going to come. They didn't understand it was going to be the Messiah coming in judgment to judge their apostate Christ-murdering kingdom of theirs, but they had it right as far as wars and rumors of wars occurring right before the Messiah came. Messiah came. They just, the purpose of the coming of the Messiah, they missed. Now, what kind of kinds of wars? Well, I'm going to divide them into three types. There's the wars between uh, the nations and Israel. And when I say the nations, I mean all the nations of the Roman Empire and Israel. Let's just say between the Roman Empire and Israel, and we're going to talk about wars between the Romans and themselves, civil war in, in Rome, and then we're going to talk about wars between the Jews and the surrounding neighbors. So let's start out with uh, the Jews against the Romans, the famous Jewish war, eighty sixty six through 70. Here's a quote from John Gill. Here wars may mean the commotions, insurrections, and seditions against the Romans and their governors and the intestine slaughters committed among them sometime before the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of it. Under Curianus, the Roman governor, a sedition was raised on the day of the Passover in which 20,000 perished. That's a lot of folks in the ancient world. And that in another 10,000 were destroyed by cutthroats in Ascalon. That's a Philistine village in the Shephelot, about southwest of Jerusalem, near toward the coast. In Ascalon, 2,000 more in Ptolemaeus. That's uh, the, the Roman name for uh, Samaria the city of Samaria, and Ptolemaeus, 2,000, at Alexandria, that's in Egypt, 50,000, at Damascus, 10,000, and elsewhere in great numbers. The Jews were also put into great consternation upon hearing the design of the Roman emperor to put up an image in their temple. So the Jews rebelled against the Romans, and the Romans fought back and killed tons of them. And I just gave you this quote here. Also in these cities, such as Damascus and Alexandria, the non-Jewish elements of the cities would attack the Jewish quarters, kind of like a pogrom of some sort, a massacre. So, all right, well, that was the first type of wars and rumors of wars, is Jewish rebellions against the Romans and Romans suppressing those rebellions and killing lots of Jews. The second kind of war and rumor of war is wars between the factions of the Roman Empire. Now, this is the famous war year of the four emperors, which is part of AD 68 and 69, right after Nero died. You had Galba, you had Othello, you, not Othello, I'm sorry, Otho, Galba, Otho, Vitellius. Those three uh, emperors and their troops fought each other to the death, killing the emperors, or the, the emperors had to commit suicide, before Vespasian took over and restored order to the empire. And that's very prominent in Preterist, Orthodox Preterist eschatology. It shows up in the book of Revelation. Those three governors, the war, of, the year four emperors, 68 and 69 A.D., so those, all those took place right before AD 70. And then you got war between Rome, wars between Rome and its constituent nations as, as, as nations rebelled against the Roman Empire itself. Now, the remarkable thing about all these wars that were happening is that Jesus lived in the time of the Pax Romana, the famous Roman peace that started in AD 27 when the Emperor Caesar Augustus settled the Roman Empire from all of its civil wars 
after the assassination of Julius Caesar and, and what followed. And they were living at perfect peace, and yet Jesus predicted wars and rumors of wars. And by golly, did it ever happen? The Pax Romana was necessary for a war to be assigned. Otherwise, it would just be business as usual. But because of the fact that everything's peaceful, all of a sudden, bang, all of a sudden these wars break out, then the disciples will say, that's what Jesus predicted on the Mount of Olives. That means, hey, something big's about to happen. Adam Clark says, both wars and rumors of wars can be seen in Josephus. He mentions a quote from the Antiquities and also a quote from the Jewish War. Here's, here's a quote. He, he, he cites those two places. And then... Uh, jo, uh, John Gill says this, quote, especially as to the rumors of wars when Caligula ordered his statue to be set up in the temple of God, which the Jews, having refused, had every reason to expect a war with the Romans and were in such consternation on the occasion that they even neglected to till their land. Ah, yeah, the Caligula was getting ready to go in there and really profane the temple, and he, he was talked out of it, I think, if I remember correctly. But that you can imagine when that word got out that, there was going to be a war. The Jews weren't going to put up with that. And Jesus told the, his disciples, don't be alarmed when you're about all these wars about to break out. Don't leave Jerusalem prematurely because of the commotion. Stay there and keep preaching the gospel is what he's saying. And as I mentioned earlier, I'll mention it again, the end is not yet. When you see rumors of war, the end is not yet. He means the end of Israel, the end of the rabbinic apostate Jewish order, the end of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not the end of the world. Now this word nation, when nation will rise against nation, that could be translated as tribe or ethnic group. Because the word is ethnos, which means a tribe, a people group, in Chinese is minzu, which is literally mean is people, and zu is group, a people group. So it doesn't necessarily mean a nation state, it could be people within the Roman Empire fighting each other. So let's read another quote from the Jewish War and Jewish Antiquities of Josephus. Quote, the country also in various districts was a prey to disorder and the opportunities induced numbers of persons to aspire to sovereignty. And so Judea was filled with brigandage. Anyone might make himself king as head of a band of rebels whom he fell in with and then would press on to the destruction of the community, causing trouble to few Romans and then only to a small degree, but bringing the greatest slaughter upon their own people. Well... Actually, the point making distinctions about who was fighting who, whether it was nations within the Roman Empire, uh, ethnic groups within Roman and the Roman armies fighting the Jews and all, it doesn't make any difference. The point is, and whether it's wars in the Roman Empire war or the Jewish war itself, all of that doesn't make any difference. Just the point is, is there was going to be a lot of war going on after the Roman peace. And the disciples were supposed to not be afraid because it would be frightening if you think the Roman Empire is about to break up. You can imagine how frightening that was. And being in the midst of the Jewish war, that would be pretty frightening too. Jesus said, don't worry about it. Don't be alarmed. We're going to see later how he planned on getting the Christians out of Jerusalem before it fell, which is one of the best arguments for a Protestant interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. All right, that's wars and rumors of wars. Now, well, I've already, and I've mentioned also nation rising up against nation and kingdom against kingdom where the Roman Empire is fighting itself, kingdom against kingdom, and nation rising up against nation, ethnic groups rising against ethnic groups, all the ethnic groups, and for example, Damascus and Alexandria slaughtering the Jews, and so forth. All right, so we've got wars and rumors of wars. Now let's look at famines and earthquakes. Let's start with famines first. Well, actually, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. Let's look at some nations fighting with each other. Some more quotes from John Gill. There were great commotions in the Roman Empire between Otho and Vitellius, and Vitellius and Vespasian, and at length the Romans rose up against the Jews under the latter and entirely destroyed them. 
Adam Clark says this, there was civil war in Italy while Otho and Vitellius were contending for the empire. That's the year of the four emperors. I've already said that, but I'm just giving you some more quotes. Sure, I'm not making this up. Here's a quote from Tacitus by way of Gary DeMar and D.D. Warren. Quote, disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, the war in Britain, the war in Armenia. That's because the Roman Empire was breaking up. So everybody's fighting everybody, nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group, all the ethnic groups that made up that polyglot Roman Empire fighting each other. All right, here's another quote from Tacitus, the famous Roman historian by way of Ken Gentry. Quote, the history on which I am entering, this is just following Nero's death in 68 AD, is that of a period rich in disaster, terrible with battles, torn by civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors failed by the sword. That's the year of four emperors. There were three civil wars, more foreign wars, and often both at the same time. Bad times in the Roman Empire. Here's another quote from Josephus in his book, The Jewish War. Every city was divided into two armies and camped against one another, and the preservation of the one party was in the destruction of the other, so that the daytime was spent in the shedding of blood and the night in fear. It was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with infants, all dead and scattered about together. Women also lay amongst them, without any covering for their nakedness. You might then see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities, while dread of still more barbarous practices were threatened. It was everywhere greater than what it already perpetrated. So, you get the idea. Nation is fighting against nation. There's wars everywhere. And when there wasn't war, there was a rumor that a war was about to start. That was an example of other nations fighting themselves within the Roman Empire. Here's an example, here's some example quotes referring to nations fighting with Israel. Here's John Gill, the Jewish nation rose up against others, the Samaritans, the Syrians, and the Romans. Adam Clark continues, this pretended the dissensions, insurrections, and mutual slaughter of the Jews and those of other nations who dwelt in the same cities together. This is ethnic group rising up against ethnic group, nation against nation in the cities. The Jews were just a part of the cities and the other ethnic groups grew up and they slaughtered them. Here's, how about the Samaritans? The Samaritans murdered some Galileans going up to a feast in Jerusalem while Cumanus was procurator in Syria. And here's another quote from Adam Clark. There was dissension in Caesarea where the Jews and Syrians contended about the right of the city, which ended there in the total expulsion of the Jews, about 20,000 of whom were slain. The whole Jewish nation being exasperated at this flew to arms and burnt and plundered the neighboring cities and villages of the Syrians make it an immense slaughter of the people. So now you got the Jews against the Syrians. The Syrians in return destroyed not a less number of the Jews. At Sisopolis, that's right, south and west of the south and southern end of the dead of the uh, Sea of Galilee, at Sisopolis they murdered upwards of 13,000 people. At Ascalon, that's southwest of Jerusalem, the Philistine city, they killed 2,500. At Ptolemaeus, they slew 2,000 and made many prisoners. That's in north of Jerusalem in the city of Samaria. Ptolemaeus is the Roman city of Samaria. The Tyrians also put many Jews to death. That's outside of Israel to the north in Lebanon, present-day Lebanon on the coast. The Tyrians also put many Jews to death and imprisoned many of the people of, and imprisoned more. The people of Gadara did likewise. That's to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and, and southeastern side. And all the other cities of Syria in proportion as they hated or feared the Jews. So that hatred between Syria and Israel has been going on for a long, long time. At Alexandria, that's in Egypt, the Jews and heathens fought. I've already mentioned this once, but this is a little bit more detail. 
at Alex, as, as Alexandria, uh, at Alexandria, the Jews and heathens fought, and 50,000 of the former were slain. The people of Damascus conspired against the Jews of that city, and assaulting them unarmed, killed 10,000 of them. That's other nations fighting against Jews. Now here we have the, the Jews fighting against the Romans. Whole nation of the Jews against the Romans and Agrippa and other allies of the Roman Empire, which began when Jesus Florus was procurator. That's the beginning of the Jewish War. Here's some quotations from Second Ezra, quoted by John Gill. And one shall undertake to fight against another, one city against another, one place against another, one people against another, and one realm against another. Another quote from Second Esdras. The beginning of sorrows and great mournings, the beginning of famine and great death, the beginning of wars, and the power shall stand in fear, the beginning of evils. What shall I do when these evils come? Another quote from Second Esdras. Esdras. Therefore, when there shall be seen earthquakes and uproars of the people in the world. All right, now... So much for wars and rumors of wars. I think that's, I'm overkilling it here because everybody assumes this is referring to the end of the world. No, it wasn't. It was referring to right before Jerusalem fell in AD 70. Now let's talk about famines. Here's an example of a famine in that period between AD 30 and AD 70, Acts 11:28. Then one of them named Agabus, one of the prophets, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. Claudius ruled 41 to 54 AD. This famine is mentioned by Suetonius Tacitus, the famous Roman historian, and by Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous church historian. The famine was so severe that the church in Corinth, far away from Jerusalem, sent relief. That's the famous poor relief for Jerusalem that Paul arranged, took back on his, after his third journey. Josephus, Josephus likely mentions this famine as affecting Judea. Quote from... Josephus, a famine did oppress them at that time, and many people died for want of what was necessary to procure, procure food withal. So that's the famine in AD, around AD 50 or so. Then there's also the famine that was in Jerusalem because of the Jewish war. This is related by Josephus in his book, The Jewish War. This is a great story. It's a terrible story, actually. There was a rich woman in Jerusalem named Mary, the daughter of Eliezer. She got so hungry that she boiled and ate half of her baby son. She saved half of her son for later, covered him up put him in the refrigerator if she have had power. Soldiers smell the baby. They're so hungry. They come into her house and say, I want food. Give us food. She says, sure, I got a good meal for you. She uncovered her half-eaten son. The soldier stood stupefied, and I don't think that the soldiers ate the baby, although I don't know. This is a fulfillment of the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Let me read this. You will eat your children. The flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you. Now, Deuteronomy 28 was a curse on the people if they disobeyed the law. This happened in 586 B.C. also when the Babylonians wiped out Jerusalem. But it also happened in 87 when the Romans wiped out, wiped out Jerusalem. The law continues in verse 54. The most sensitive and refined man among you will look grudgingly at his brother, the wife he embraces, and the rest of his children, refusing to share with any of them his children's flesh that he will eat because he has nothing left during the siege. In other words, he's going to eat his kid, but he's not going to give any, any of his food to his wife and children. He's going, to let, he's going to eat his own kid by himself. The most sensitive and refined woman among you, in verse 56, you would not venture, who would not venture to set the full of her foot on the ground because of her refinement and sensitivity, will begrudge the husband she embraces, her son and her daughter, the afterbirth that comes out from between her legs and the children she bears, because she will secretly eat them for lack of anything else. In other words, she has a baby, she's going to eat the afterbirth, which, believe it or not, 
I, this is gross to say, but there's a, a woman in a church that's an expert on this that takes afterbirth placenta and freezes it and makes stuff out of it for people to eat. Says it's very healthy. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. I looked at her. I said, you've got to be kidding me. She said, no, I'm very serious. Well, so the woman is starving to death. She's eating her own afterbirth and her kid that came with the afterbirth, but she's not going to share it with her other children and her husband. Now, that is the most grotesque description of a siege you could ever imagine. Well, it happened. Josephus records it in 8070. This literally came to pass. These famines were so severe that many died. Here's a quote from the Antiquities of Josephus, cited by Adam Clark. Then did the famine widen its progress. This is the famine in the Jewish war. And devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Quoting some more from the Jewish wars of Josephus. As the famine grew worse, the frenzy of the insurgents kept pace with it, and every day these horrors burned more fiercely, for since nowhere was going to be sinned, seen, men would break into houses, and if they found some, they mistreated the occupants for having denied their possession of it. If they found none, they tortured them as if they had concealed it more carefully. Proof, whether they had food or not, was provided by the physical appearance of the wretches. Those still in good condition were deemed to be well provided with food, while those who were already wasting away were passed over, for it seemed pointless to kill persons who would soon die of starvation." Many secretly bartered their possessions for a single measure of wheat if they happened to be rich, barley if they were poor. Then they shut themselves up in the darkest corners of their houses. In the extremity of hunger, some even ate their grain underground, while others baked it, guided by necessity and fear. Nowhere was a table laid. The food was snatched half-cooked from the fire and torn into pieces. Now, with descriptions like that, you see why you should read the Josephus. Read everything he wrote, especially when he wrote The Jewish War about the Jewish War. The book, The Jewish Wars, is what you should read. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Here's another quote from Josephus in The Jewish War. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and fell, like, fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. So Jesus predicted that famine would come before the end, and all these famines I just read you about happened right before the end, eighty seventy, when the temple went down. He also predicted earthquakes would come. Now, it's the Greek word there is shaking, seismoi, and so some people say that refers to political commotions. Well, maybe, but I don't think so. I think it's talking about physical, geographical earthquakes. Now, here's some examples of that that happened during the run-up to the Jewish War. There was one in Crete in the reign of Claudius, according to Adam Clark. There's one in Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. This is in the in Phrygia, which is kind of the central southwestern part of Asia Minor. Present-day Turkey, they were all destroyed by earthquakes. The whole towns were destroyed by earthquakes in the time of Nero. The, the famous Colossae, where the Colossian church was, gone. This is from Tacitus, the Roman historian. There was an earthquake at Smyrna in Miletus, Chios, and Samos. That's Miletus is in the on the southwest coast of Asia Minor. Chios and Samos are islands off the coast. The western coast of present-day Turkey, Smyrna is in the western uh, portion of Turkey, earthquakes. There was one at Rome. There's one in Campania in Rome. There's one in Judea. Adam Clark quotes, is quoting Josephus in the Jewish War. This earthquake was accompanied by a dreadful tempest, violent winds, vehement showers, and continual lightnings and thunders, which led many to believe that these things pretended some uncommon calamity. 
Yeah, like the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus also said the constitution of the universe was confounded for the destruction of men. And then, of course, there's the famous Pompey, which was damaged in 63 AD, which was right before the, uh, AD 70, the end of the Jewish age, when the end came. Jesus said that there was going to be earthquakes before the end. How about Pompey? That was a famous... Well, excuse me, I'm thinking about the, the, the volcano that destroyed Pompey. This is an earthquake that damaged Pompey very much. Now, here's a quote from Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher who was Nero's advisor for a long time, the Stoic philosopher Seneca, quote, How often have cities in Asia, how often Achaia, been laid low by a single shock of earthquake? How many towns in Syria, how many in Macedonia have been swallowed up? How often has this kind of devastation laid Cyprus in ruins? How often has Paphos collapsed? Not unfrequently are tidings brought to us of the utter destruction of entire cities. So you see, Jesus' prediction of earthquakes before the end came, was ex it, it took place, it happened. Now let's look in our parallel passage to this verse in Matthew, Matthew's version of the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, verse 11. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. So Luke adds a few details. He adds two Two of these birth pang signs, plagues and terrifying sights, great signs from heaven. I'm going to assume that the terrifying sights and great signs from heaven were astronomical events. So let's see, did plagues happen? Well, here's Suetonius, the Roman historian. In a single autumn, 30,000 deaths from plague were registered at the temple of Libertina. This is, this is, I don't know where that, I think that's in Rome somewhere. Tacitus says at Rome... A plague devastated the entire population. The houses were full of corpses and the streets of funerals. Now, Jesus did mention things that were happen in the Roman Empire, because remember, the Jew Jewish nation was part of the Roman Empire. So don't let that throw you. Say, well, that didn't have anything to do with Jerusalem. No, it had something to do with the Jews. They, they were Romans, too. All right, these supernatural phenomena, these terrifying sights and great signs, you notice it says terrifying sights and great signs from Heaven, Luke says in chapter 21, verse 11, from heaven, these terrifying sights and great signs. Well, you know, in the ancient world, comets and eclipses and things like that. In China, for example, it meant the end of the emperor. And, in, and all over the ancient world, it meant a disaster or something bad's about to happen. Now, I'm going to assume that these signs and great signs were astronomical events. Now, here are two examples that happened. There was two comets during Nero's reign. And, of course, the ancients felt comets were frightful omens of disaster. The first comet caused Nero to murder his offspring so that, because he thought a comet pretended a change of, a regime change, and he was the president emperor. He was scared somebody was going to knock him off. So he didn't want, he wanted to inhibit successes to the throne, so he murdered his offspring. And the second comet that occurred in Rome happened just before Nero's suicide. So I think that explains that pretty good. Now, I will say that some people like to quote Josephus and say, yeah, there were terrifying sights and great signs, and these signs came from, from heaven, meaning from God. God gave these signs, but they weren't necessarily in the sky. Now, I don't believe this because uh, these, these, orthodox preterists, uh, these orthodox preterists like, like to quote Josephus in the Jewish war for this. For example, Adam Clark, and say this is what happened, and this is what, Jesus is referring to in Luke 21:11, terrifying signs and great signs. But I don't believe that Josephus is right about some of this stuff, and I'll show you why. All right, here's the sign, the first thing that Josephus mentions. First, a star hung over the city like a sword, and a comet continued a whole year. Well, that's a heavenly sign. I can buy that one, no problem. Here's the second sign of, that Josephus mentions. The people being assembled at the Feast of Unleavened Bread at the ninth hour of the night, a great light shone about the altar in the temple, and this continued for half an hour. 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe so. How about this one? The third sign. At the same feast, a cow led to sacrifice, a sacrificial cow, sacrificial animal, brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. A cow gave birth to a lamb? I don't think so. Fourth sign that Josephus mentions, the eastern gate of the temple, which was of solid brass and very heavy and could hardly be shut by 20 men and was fastened by strong bars and bolts, was seen at the sixth hour of the night to open of its own accord. Now, that could have happened because the heavy lintel, which was tons, it weighed tons, could have broken because of an earthquake or shifting of the ground. The lintel breaks, and that makes the doors open. So that's, that's not unlikely. Before sunsetting, there were seen all over the country chariots and armies fighting in the clouds and besieging cities. I have no idea what that could be. Sixth sign that Josephus mentions, at the Feast of Pentecost, when the priests were going into the inner temple by night to attend their service, they heard first a motion and noise, and then a voice of a multitude saying, let us depart hence. I have no idea what that could be. Seventh sign, when what Josephus reckons one of the most terrible signs of all was that one Jesus, a country fellow, four years before the war began, which would be, what, 62 or so, and when the city was in peace and plenty, came to the Feast of Tabernacles and ran crying up and down the streets day and night, a voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the temple, a voice against the bridegrooms and the brides, and a voice against all the people. Though the magistrates endeavored by stripes and tortures to restrain him, yet he still cried with a mournful voice, Woe, woe to Jerusalem! And this he continued to do for several years together, going about the walls and crying with a loud voice, Woe, woe to the city, and to the people, and to the temple. And, as he added, Woe, woe to myself. A stone from some sling or engine struck him dead on the spot. Well, that's all very interesting for Josephus, but I prefer to think that there were signs in heaven, comets, and things like that, which were portents of the destruction of the city. Now, let's make an, let's go back to this earthquake business. Jesus said earthquakes would come. Now, futurists often erroneously say that when Jesus comes back before the end of the world, not the end of the Jewish age, but the end of the world, increase will increase in number and in magnitude. And Jesus never said that. He didn't say a word about earthquakes increasing. He just said there were going to be earthquakes. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. That's all he said. He didn't say there were going to be more earthquakes, and he didn't say there were going to be bigger earthquakes than the world's ever seen. I remember one time I sat and listened to a man give a seminar, a futurist, give a seminar on just on earthquakes, nothing but earthquakes and how they were coming. And by golly, I know people in that meeting that went and bought more earthquake insurance for their houses. Total waste of money, in my humble opinion, because Jesus was talking about earthquakes that happened. Remember, all these signs are tied to all these things will take place when? Before this generation passes away. Before 40 years goes by, we're going to have a bunch of earthquakes, not earthquakes 2,000 years later at the end of time. And besides, it's hard to say that earthquakes today are increasing, because you can say about the earthquakes that happened around 8070, this is a quote from Edward Hayes Plumptra, 1897, he says this, quote, Perhaps no period in the world's history has ever been so marked by these convulsions as that which intervenes between the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem. Gary DeMar says of that period, the number of earthquakes during that era, 8030 to 8070, the, the number is staggering. Well, how do futurists come up with this idea that earthquakes are going to increase? Because verse 8 says, all these events are the beginning of birth pains. And they take the analogy, the metaphor, too far. Birth pains do increase as time goes on, but that wasn't the point of the metaphor. The point is, is that these famines, these earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars 
are just signs that the baby's about to be delivered. And of course, the baby being delivered is Jerusalem being destroyed. These are just the signs. So don't think the baby's coming. Don't think that Israel's going to be destroyed just because you see a few famines and earthquakes and wars. That's the end of this audio. We'll take up the Olivet Discourse at Matthew 24, verse 8 in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.